Men of low moral fiber. Choo choo choo. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. This is how I saw episode two. And I know who you talk about, man. <laughs> Okay, so let's move seamlessly now. And I'm Kurt Reynolds. Dare do that. Settle down, Don. <laughs> we need to give a parental advisory for this. Clicking furiously on my mouse. Eat the paella. All right, everybody. Let's get swifty. That was cool. That was fun, guys. Awesome. Yeah. Oh. Welcome to Men of Low Moral Fiber, the show whose roots lie not in any earthly nation soil, but we're summoned up from the land of the dead itself and given one purpose, one skill, one desire. To pod! I'm your host, Ben Helms, and with me as always is my trusty demonic co-host, always pushing the boundaries of speed and technical possibility, Jason Helms. How's it going, man? Heart is good. Good heart. <laughs> good heart. Uh, man, thank you for putting me in the role of Glottis. Yeah, of uh, I appreciate that. Of course, man. I'm Manny. I'm my main character. You're my sidekick. Yeah. Happy to be yeah. Glottis. I'm your boss. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and we've got uh, Menche as well. Um, not sure <laughs> yeah. who the third character is. Sure. Uh, but we're joined by a friend of mine, Nick Fontrager, uh, assistant professor of art at TCU, colleague, uh, friend of the show, uh, co-worker, friend, compatriot, and an expert in uh, Grim Fandango and a uh, an amateur in the Unity game engine, or maybe an expert in that as well. So, so Nick, I, I've pitched you pretty high. How's it going? It's going fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. I think I could probably pull off a Meche, but I, I don't know. Maybe I should be more like Pepito or the little Angelitos, the, yes. the little tinkering and, and making light bulbs, uh, considering I teach a lot of interactive electronics in my classes. Oh, I like that. That, that fits well. By the way, Pamela Alden was the voice of one of those little uh, Angelito. The ones hammering the thing. Pamela, okay, my bad. Right. She's a voice actor. Uh, probably, okay. I mean, you could probably get that. Makes from that. sense. Uh, she was out. in. She was in Louis. She's kind of like pseudo oh, girlfriend okay. friend or whatever. She's also in the new show, uh, produced by Louis. Unfortunately, uh, Better Things. I think is what it's called, and it's like a female version of the show Louis in, the, in this way that it's directed in the story. And she's a single mom in L.A. being a voice cool. actor. Anyway, cool. she's awesome. Just jumped uh, out at me because usually I don't know the voice actors from games from twenty years ago. The, the love interest from the first season. Yeah, with the kid. Oh, totally remember her. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's awesome. Yeah, she's great. What were you going to say, Nick? Oh, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, with voice actors, Manny, Manny's voice is uh, somebody who is a very popular uh, Mexican actor and, and voice actor. Oh, and nice. So I, so I played this game in 1998 when it came out. And I guess shortly after that was, you know, high school Spanish classes yeah. and things like that. And we watched a film called Sweet 15 that was about like a quinceanera and he That's was awesome. the father and yes. the whole time we were watching <laughs> this film all i could think about was manny calavera being yes. the, the dad in this tv show that we had to watch in high school spanish class it was great oh my is, god is he as cool in that because i think there's no he's very cool he's so, cool guy. he's so suave and you know he loses his cool a few times in the the movie yeah but it was great nice that's awesome. This is like prime time. So we haven't really said it. People clicked on the link. They probably know we played Grim Fandango this past month. And it, this was like, I was going to say the apex, but maybe towards the end of 
point-and-click games, especially for LucasArts. And so they had all the money. They're coming fresh off that full-throttle money. They're giving Tim Schafer all the money and all the power. They say, you do what you want to do. And he made this game. And this is seen, we'll get more into it later, but this is seen as kind of like a, a pivotal game, one of the greatest point-and-click games ever. It's a really long one, which is a big criticism of earlier point-and-clickers. They just weren't long enough. They were either impossibly hard or really super easy and quick. And this kind of takes both of those and melds them really well. Uh, the puzzles are very intuitive, that kind of stuff. So, uh, well, I think just just chiming in on that too. It wasn't originally a point and click, which is where I was so confused. Oh, that's a good call. And that's a good and call. So, yeah, I go into that. You know, it, it it was originally uh, tank controls, right? So it came out around like you know Resident Evil and stuff, and all these games where you were kind of in the the character shoes. So if you pressed forward, you would walk forward. It was it wasn't camera relative; it was character relative, right? And so. When, it, when replaying this, you know, the remastered version, I was so confused because my previous dozen playthroughs or whatever were yes. all in the purely keyboard interaction, walking around and and not being able to point and click. Yeah, and that think, was so cool. I didn't learn that until I was until after I beat the game, only using my mouse. I didn't realize that the original version, because I don't I, I know I played it, but I don't remember it from 1998. Well, there's, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, but there's a lot of things in the game that didn't get converted, I, I don't think. So I, I still fell back as, as I was playing it last week into my old keyboard method oh, without the, cool. you know, because you can see Manny look around when something is, yeah. is interactive. Yeah. There's a lot of times where he'll look at something and it's not, it doesn't have a hover over with the point and click. That's and cool. so. I was able to remember, you know, he had a little story about something. And so I'd use the keyboard and walk over and listen to him, have some dialogue or solve a, a puzzle faster. Or whatever. Yeah, the because, original uh, version w- didn't have a cursor at all. You, you literally had, had to no walk cursor. around every room and his head would look at things that seemed interesting or that you yeah, could interact was, with. And there was no yeah. pop up. It, was, right. it wasn't like you would click something and a little dial would pop up. You would just have to hit the E key or the U key or kind of memorize what you could do so that's that was so that's crazy it was great that i had completely awesome. forgotten that um Same. wow uh it's amazing to think about that for the conversion process too about uh not just how they would do that but but why yeah i think that was what was confusing is is why that was modded or why that was changed but i guess it maybe it was because it was it was really clunky and hard to play yeah when you it, had no on-screen heads-up display. One of the reasons I know, and again, we're just going all out of order, which is totally fine. <laughs> one of the reasons I know in, in one of the behind-the-scenes, Tim talks about when they did the remastered version, they met with a lot of fans that had hacked the game or done their own versions of the game. And one of them, the first person they met with, had created a point-and-click version of the original game. Like, gone through and just changed all the code to, ever, to, to make a brand new game, basically. And so they met wow. with him, and they're like, how did you do this? Wow. And they like met with him for weeks and figured out how to do it and basically made his game, you know, just with a bigger budget. That's amazing. But yeah, it's it's insane. It's cool that they use the fan. I mean, the fans are the only reason that the remake could happen in the first place. And it's cool of them to realize that. Um, yeah, we'll get into the we'll get into the um, the making of. We'll talk about some of the gameplay. And of course, we'll play What's the Beer? What's the Song? Talk about next month's game and all that later. But first, we played Grim Fandango. It's a long game. It spans four years. A bunch of different locations, guys. I need one quick 
answer from you. If you had to pick one job to have in any town from Grim Fandango, so that's from El Moro, Rubacava, Edge of the World, any place in between there possibly, uh, what would it be? And kind of, you know, who would you be? What would you be doing? I can go first because I didn't give you a chance. Oh, that's easy. Play. No, I got it. No, oh, go for it. I'm I'm Gladys uh, playing at Manny's Club in Rubacava. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's the only option. Mine was mine was Gladys actually not playing at Manny's Club in the High Roller Suite or the High Roller Club. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just betting on cats betting. all day long, man. Getting those free I'll, drinks, betting on cats. I'll get away from Gladys then and I'll, I'll say I'll be one of the uh, revolutionaries in the Blue Note. Yeah. See, I was thinking about the Blue Note. Or is it the Coffin Club or Blue Coffin? Coffin. Some, something like Blue that. Blue Coffin. And I felt like it would be really great to be the sound guy in the yeah. Blue Coffin, where you're hearing all this poetry, <laughs> you're hearing... You know, all these people passing out from the, the drink that they get. But you never really see who that might be. So maybe I'd have to think of a different job. Nice. But I, 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 I really enjoyed that part. Or the sea bees. I love the surly, you know, see, the actual bees that yeah. are the, the revolutionaries. Guys. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like uh, we've got the, the stuff uh, th- that does stuff. And uh, and it's like we need to take it back from the people. The words. <laughs> oh, man. What is it? Don't say those words good. I loved that. Oh so man! Much. I think I, I'd either be Gladys gambling, or I'd be the little demons at the end with the worshiping Gladys. Oh, yeah, with the little hoodies, right. with the little hoodies right. and the fire extinguishers. Yeah, they seemed like they were pretty happy, pretty drama free, living good lives. They were worshiping Gladys, you know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So this game came out originally in 1998, was re-released, the remastered version by Double Fine, Tim Schafer's jam, uh, in 2015. And the whole thing came from Tim Schafer, kind of like Full Throttle, right? Where it's just kind of like, this is the most creative person in the history of LucasArts. And they gave him all the power again, which is awesome. So Tim Schafer from uh, Day of the Tentacle, I think was one of his first leads. Then uh, Full Throttle. And then Psychonauts was one of his first games for Double Fine. Also did Brutal Legend and The Cave. So yeah, a bunch of big successes throughout his career. But yeah, this was, again, like I said, post Full Throttle. Tim Schafer was at the lead. What does he want to do? They really wanted, they meaning uh, the, the head of LucasArts, whoever that was at the time, wanted him to do a, a sequel to Full Throttle, which Jason and I talked about on the Full Throttle episode. How cool that would be. We talked about some ideas, I think, even in that episode of what we'd want a yeah. sequel to look like. Uh, but instead, he didn't want to exhaust those ideas and decided to go with a Dio de los Muertos themed game, which is very unique game idea. Uh, and I'm sure it's been done since just because there are so many games out there. But it's de- at the time, definitely kind of a revolutionary new idea for a game, uh, especially for a point and click. But yeah, related to a lot of uh, Mexican and Aztec folklore. And he at the time, because that just gives kind of the the character look of the game, right, for the most part. And and I guess the setting. Uh, but at the time, it was he was really just personally into film noir. I guess just yeah. that was where Tim was at the time. And so he decided to combine that. So you get a lot of the art deco, obviously the plot of Manny, or I guess the, the job of Manny, that kind of thing. The whole feel of the game, right. Is, is that film noir type, the way it's shot, all the angles of everything. A lot of the one liners are film noir based. And so, yeah, combine these two things that I don't know if they've ever been combined before, but turned into Grim Fandango, which is this like wholly unique and independent from those two things. It's, it's such a cool game. Yeah, it it um, reminds me of some like Dadaist writing exercise where you would just grab two random genres, put them together, and say, right. okay, "Now what can I do with that?" Yeah, and I, I mean, I would never put Day of the Dead right. uh, with film noir, but uh, it works so incredibly well. Uh, peanut butter and chocolate—it's great. Exactly. But he said it's specifically the idea of people being buried with uh, 
with I think this is kind of a Dia, Dia de los Muertos, not colloquialism, but I guess a part of the background is that people would bury their dead with a bag of gold on their chest and then a bag of gold buried somewhere in the coffin. And so when grave robbers or people from beyond criminals in the afterlife would raid the coffin, they would take the the, uh, the bag of gold off the chest and not find the one. So that way, when their relative made it to the netherworld or wherever they were going, I guess not the netherworld, right? The afterlife, they would have that hidden bag of gold for them. So the idea of like there being crime in the afterlife was something that Tim talked about being just like a fascinating idea that he wanted to to make an entire game about, which is pretty sweet. That it's actually cool. based on on real stuff or real ideas, real folklore. Uh, and he's, yeah, he said as soon as he combined film noir, that kind of the game just started making itself. He got Manny, he got Meche, he got kind of the main people, and the game just started going. Uh, and the idea of making it like a four-year journey too just seemed like this Lord of the Rings type, like a Hobbit epic type thing, which was also rare for that point-and-click type game. Or I guess not point-and-click, adventure game I should call it. I shouldn't call it point-and-click because that's not what it was at the time. Do one of you want to set up the kind of plot? Well, I think the plot is... Just to, to start out, you start as you you really have almost no introduction to to who you are. I think you start yeah. as Manny, and a note comes through a very you know antiquated pneumatic tube, yep. which is still you know great. It's efficient. You're you're kind of thinking, oh, where is you know is this in the 1920s or 30s, and or is this in a bank now where you still right. see pneumatic tubes used? And so yeah. you just see him look at look at the tube and say something like, oh, that's I wonder what that is. Or I can't remember what he says. Right. But that's really all you get. And then over the course of a few basic kind of LucasArts interactions and navigating this this office, he found out that you're a travel agent for the recently deceased. And your job is basically to help them identify what they might qualify for to get to the afterlife. Yeah. And it is very clear that there's multiple tiers depending on how good you were or how charitable you were. And we find out right away the opposite ends of that spectrum where you might get a walking stick with a compass uh, where you have to with a compass, which is great (laughs) where you walk for four years basically, or you might take the number nine train, which gets you there in nine minutes, right? Or something Something like that. Yeah, Yeah. It's, you know, this very quick destination to the, to the, to the afterlife yeah yeah and during the course of the game you actually end up taking all the different modes of transportation he yes, mentioned uh true. you know boat train walking uh all of it and of course it takes you four years and there's a combination of going there getting back uh stopping to wait all the kinds of things as manny goes on an adventure uh befriends someone named glottis who is a demon and uh a car freak uh who builds hot rods out of like anything just the best and he goes in pursuit of the uh, female character, who is a love interest and uh, also someone that Manny has feels that he has done wrong because he uh, tried to get her as a client through uh, some uh, less than kosher means. Mm-hmm. And then she didn't get her just uh, desserts. And because of that, he feels responsible and he has to correct this. But also he's got a crush on her. So let's back up a little bit. When I... Uh, this is basically the first time I played it. The game cover looked familiar to me. That was about it, which is unfortunate because this game has been out for 20 years now. Uh, but when I got to the part where he's looking for leads and he goes to the real world as the Grim Reaper, as the Grim Reaper, and he gets, oh, I can't remember the, the guy's name, but he goes to like the, the ice cream parlor or whatever that was, that terrifying place. That was That's so the, cool. Yeah. What is that? That's just like that the real so world. Cool. That's I, lo- I was I hoping loved, for more of that. I love the view of 
the living from the dead. Uh, so yes. in that, if you haven't played it yet, because this is still the spoiler-free zone, sure. they use like this collage method of creating it. So you've been used to computer graphics the whole time, these really kind of unrefined polygons. And then when you're in the land of the living, it's people that are just frozen in time, and they're all built out of collages, Yes, which was so beautifully From updated. magazines, specifically from yeah. you know, kind of these images you might see in a, in a catalog or, yep. or something. And it felt very 1950s, 1960s um, catalog, like uh, th- this kind of perfect American life uh, that had been cut up and repasted. Yeah. But it, it, as soon as that happened, I was like, this is the weirdest game I've ever played. And it keeps getting weirder and weirder. I'm a skeleton who's a travel agent for dead people. And I just saw a collage of people from the 50s eating ice cream. And I put this guy in a coffin with like packing peanut material around him. Like it was the first half an hour was like mind blowingly weird. And I don't think it gets less weird. You just kind of get used to it, how weird it is. You just embrace it. And yeah, especially for a LucasArts game. I think it just seems like edgy and unsafe, I guess, compared to like cartoon bunny and dog and teenagers looking for tentacles in aliens and stuff like that, which is a lot of other LucasArts games. So uh, yeah, just very different in that way. Uh, yeah, real quick. It doesn't use the scum engine. It uses uh, a 3d engine actually called the, they created for this called the grime engine or grim E grim, grim engine, probably, um, that they use in, uh, escape from monkey Island later on. But yeah, they built, they took the Sith engine from pre- uh, previous star Wars games at the time, commodified it with the Lua language and then made their own language or made their own game engine for this. Uh, and again, just kind of continued to push the technical capabilities of the time, at least at LucasArts. Um, the music, we talked a little bit about before we started, but the music is amazing for this game, especially for 1998. I think this was kind of a big, um, kind of a new step for LucasArts and just game PC games in general. Uh, it was a lot of live uh, scoring with orchestra doing this. this Peter McConnell is behind all of this, uh, but he wanted to do a noir jazz score. Well, before the game was even in his vision or on his horizon, or whatever, he talked to Tim, he's working at LucasArts, and he's like, I'd love to do a game with a noir jazz score. Just someday. <laughs> and so he's like, yeah, t- hey, hey, Peter, let's go do this game together. And that's exactly what he did. So uh, it won many, many awards, not just the game itself, lots of game of the year awards, but lots of game or lots of awards for uh, for music and for score and for sound design. Um, so, yeah, just and you said, Nick, you said you had the soundtrack as well. I do. I actually looked it up a minute ago. My I, my soundtracks and I have all my kind of jewel discs, similar to how Jason was mentioning his are in a, in a safe place. I have all mine in a plastic, you know, jewel case box nice. yeah, yeah. in my office, but I have the original discs and everything. And then I have the soundtrack, which um, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but LucasArts used to have a catalog you could order Yeah, in yeah, yeah. the 90s. And so I remember, you know, I, uh, clearly from my stock here, I, I bought a lot of LucasArts games and I. There was always a little mail-in card inside where you could send it off and get the catalog. And so when Grim Fandango came out, that was, I think, maybe the only way you could get the soundtrack. And I remember ordering it, and you had to mail in, you know, a check from your parents or whatever, you know, because I was only uh, 14 or whatever, 15. And it came in a cardboard sleeve. And I just looked it up and on Amazon just to see. And I guess it was produced in really limited numbers. And that was the mm. only way you could get it. 
yeah. was through this catalog. And so there's one on Amazon that's listed for $190 right wow. now. Um, so maybe I need to uh, to sell mine, Keep cash out. That. Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to buy another one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, that was it was really great because Grim Fandango was so many firsts for me, you know, buying yeah. this this soundtrack. And I remember liking it so much that it was I think I played it on a computer that had a 386 oh, nice. processor. I think that was the minimum requirements. Actually, I have the box. I can tell you yeah. right now what, what those out. are. It's uh, got let's see. Minimum requirements. Uh, Pentium 133. There we go. And 32 megabytes of RAM required. Yeah, two I remember. Mega, yeah, two amazing. megabyte uh, graphics card. Two megabytes. Two megabytes. So, um, yeah. So I remember buying that and then using the CD drive that you had to use to play the game to rip the the soundtrack, so I could listen to it or make my yeah. own like remit. You know, I put it on little discs and give it to friends and stuff. That's awesome. It was great. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Houston. Houston, okay. And you had not only did you play LucasArts games, but you had friends playing LucasArts games. Well, they didn't, but they. Oh, I okay. think you know it was something where I could, I could say, hey, you got to come see this amazing LucasArts game, and we would you know crowd around and try to solve the puzzles. And how did you and get into like Grim Fandango and other LucasArts games? In the first well, I think place? once I played, you know, so it starts with uh, Wolfenstein, of course. So it starts with Wolfenstein. And Everything Doom. does, yeah. And then from there, you know, you you play every first person shooter you can find, which ultimately led to uh, Dark Forces. Which yeah. when that came out, you you played played it for hours and hours and hours. And I think from then on, it was like, oh, there's this whole genre of Star Wars interactive games, and I was a huge Star Wars uh, fan. Oh, nice, cool. And okay. so I played, you know. Rebel Forces and Tie Fight, Tie Fighter, every LucasArts games that started to come out as as soon as I could afford to, you know, save up money or mow some lawns and get money to buy it, at, you know, at the micro center or whatever they had. So that was, um, you know, and then and then it was just playing every LucasArts game that that came out because I loved them so much. The only one I missed and I, I regretted it for years was Full Throttle, and it was because I didn't have the money and. I couldn't couldn't get it, and by the time I had the money, I think Grim Fandango came out. Oh, there you go. Yeah, and so I just jumped to the newest one. So I didn't play Full Throttle until actually a few years ago. The the and, remastered uh, version? In, no, it was, I think oh, it was right okay. before they remastered it. It was just kind of I got lucky that it, that it I played I played the original, and then they remastered it later that year, and I played the remastered. Version. Oh, nice, very cool. Yeah, that's a gorgeous game too. Yeah, we played that with uh, TJ on our show. Oh, great. Um, and TJ is in a and d group with me and Nick. Nice. Oh, cool. Okay. It's all coming together now. I get it. Uh, nice. So, yeah. Back into the the making of. A lot of people and read a lot of uh, articles and interviews and a lot, of, a lot of YouTube videos on, especially the remastered version. And it seems like a lot of people who went back to revisit this game they made, I guess at the time, it was 17, 18 years before they did the remastered version. A lot of them go out of their way to say that this, that this was their favorite game they'd ever worked on. And not just like, hey, this was the best game, but like specifically the experience they had while making this game was their favorite experience as a professional designer, developer, you know, musician, whatever it might be, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. And I always like to think that about people like Tim Schafer or whoever, you know, people that we spend so much time talking about on this podcast. Uh, by the way, Nick, you said you were a Star Wars fan. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and I've come to realize, I think, over the past few years that maybe I'm not so much a Star Wars fan as I am 
an Empire Strikes Back fan. Oh, yes. sad day. I mean, that's a good realization. I, I know, guess, but that's still. Sad. I mean, you know, I I love New Hope, Jedi, and you know, I've gone out of my way to find high res copies of the original cuts. You have the despecialized version. Yeah, yeah. I, I love those. Yeah. And then before that, I was surviving on. I guess they broadcast uh, the original, the theatrical cuts in Europe on like HD TV, maybe oh, ten nice. years ago, and so I had these kind of tv rips that were you know the original cuts or something and so they were okay but then yeah somebody made the despecialized versions yeah and they're they're a huge you know commitment to your hard drive they're they're massive i think they're like 20 gigs or something each but they're fantastic have you burned them on the blu-rays yet no and you know the that was my first thought was great i can burn this onto blu-ray and then i immediately realized i don't really even uh watch blu-rays that much because I'm always either working in a in different room or working in different spaces. And so I just have uh, like a portable hard drive loaded up with stuff like that that I might oh, reference yeah. in a drawing or sculpture or something. So we can we can bring that hard drive over to the screening room in the library. That's just the, the only oh, thing yeah. to check on. Anytime. Anytime. Wasn't there a um, suspicion that Topher Grace was involved in the despecialized version? I love it if that's true. Wasn't, I don't know. I haven't heard that. I heard that. I think it I know his big... re-edit of uh, Phantom Menace. Mm, you guys know about that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, there's yeah, there's all, well, there, is it is that the one that car- crushes the prequels uh-huh. into one yeah. film? Yep. Oh, and I didn't know about that. It's it's evidently phenomenal. It's really great, and it's a good idea. if it's the same one that I've seen, and and basically you only get the last fight scene with Darth Maul out of Phantom Menace. That's it. that's it. Just, yeah, that makes sense. That's good. Makes sense. Yeah, and Topher Grace did it just to learn how to edit. Uh, he wanted. To, to teach himself editing. So his task was to take the prequels and turn it into one movie. Great. Well, Dom and I are going to take the last Jedi and turn it into a, a single movie, uh, which is a hard thing <laughs> to do. Turn it into a movie without long. any strong women in it. Is that what you're going to do, Ben? Yes. Yes. That's exactly what we're going to uh, Too many women in this movie, man. Jeez. Uh, you heard about that, right, Ben? Yeah. Yeah. What's it called? It's called the, um, the chauvinist version. I think is what it's called. Yeah. I think he oh. like proudly called it that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. The world is a terrible place. It's 45 minutes long. 45 minutes. Wow. I'm hoping that there maybe you can take the weird blue milk uh, oh, nipple gosh. creatures and put them in Jabba's palace. Maybe yes. we can digitally insert them with the dancing scene. They were there all along. Yeah. Knew I, it. I just need to loop them like a Nyan cat for yeah. like yes. 10 hours. That's yeah, what maybe, I want. That's the elephant gosh. piano player. Maybe he's blue Max, because Max he's Rebo. Max Rebo. Yes, Max Rebo. Thank you. Because it's Max Rebo's band. That's the yeah. name of the band, right? And so yeah. maybe he's blue because he drinks so much of that milk. Mm. Gross. All right. So the game spent three years in development uh, and was over a year delayed. So I, maybe they gave Tim a little too much rope on that. But uh, yeah, he said that by the end of development, they just kind of hated each other. I don't know if he said hated, but he said they were they did not like working with each other. So it was time for yeah. the game to come out. Uh, they had to drop a bunch of puzzles to get a kind of in, into a shippable state by the end of 1998. Yeah, that's what that game needed. More puzzles. Yeah, yeah, they had to drop a few, uh, several dozen, I think, is how many they had to. But yeah, he said it would have taken a, a year plus to get all the puzzle that they originally had planned for it. But yeah, they ended up shipping it a week before Day of the Dead 98, so end of October. Uh, and it made a profit, but it took so long to reach that profit. And Tim proudly says that he did finally get a royalty check, so it, that's his proof that it did turn a profit. Uh, but it took so long that it, that's used as an example as the death of adventure games and point-and-click slow clickers, as you would call them, Jay. Uh, 
but yeah, it's it's interesting because it is seen as a success twenty years later. But it's also kind of like, oh, where did those games go? Oh, they don't make money. They take so many hours to make for so little profit that they just kind of went by the wayside. Uh, and then wow. 2015 remastered version came out. Uh, Tim Schaefer and a few other people at Double Fine that I don't have the names of right now uh, went to Disney and asked if they could have the rights. Asked, you know, paid probably uh, a significant amount of money. Uh, but yeah, they remastered. They decided to ke- keep all of the Peter Chan artwork. And so they to do that, rather than redo all of the backgrounds, they kept the same aspect ratio. Which, if you guys were wondering, that's why I was wondering halfway through. I was like, why are these weird, like, skull bar things or flowers, whatever they were on the right and left side? They did that pretty elegantly. That's why I they mean, did, that's yeah. better than having black lines. But it, it also gives you the option to turn that off, which is interesting. If you turn it off, is it just black lines or what is it? It's just black. Oh, okay. Interesting. But it was maybe if that bothered you, you could turn it off. No, I liked it, but I was just like, this, why did they, I would rather have more screen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they kept all the same artwork, uh, the same graphics. They just kind of went back and restored the originals, I guess. Like they went back to the original code and rather than compressing them, they just left it uncompressed like they did with a lot of the music that they didn't have to re-record. Uh, yeah, a lot of the audio. They just went to the original recordings, which was cool that they had that they still had those. And that Disney, who now owned LucasArts, or I guess just Lucasfilm at this point, uh, still had all that on a hard drive. And they proudly in one of the behind the scenes, he held it up and he's like, this is all of Grim Fandango in the world. This is all of it. It's just an external wow. hard drive that he's holding. And it's like all the original script, all the original artwork, all the score, everything. And he's like, we have to be very careful. And it's like, it may, it's film of him making a copy of it and making a copy of that <laughs> before they dive in and start doing the remaster. Uh, but yeah, uh, they re- recorded with the Melbourne symphony orchestra. Like she went down to Australia and like recorded with a live orchestra. I don't know why they had to go to Australia. That seems like it's really far away to do, but that's what they did. I feel like they could have done some of that electronically, like maybe just emailed them the score and said, hey, could you, <laughs> hey, we did this. Could you play this? We have the Internet now. Yeah. They could have sent a small uh, skeleton. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, but the, the weird thing is they literally sent every single person involved in the remaster and the original down to uh, down to Melbourne. Yeah, I'm pretty weird. sure that's canon. Wow. wow. And then the last tidbit I have for you is that Schaefer was asked by Kotaku uh, when they were doing their press tour for the remaster in 2014. Uh, if they would ever consider or be able to do a sequel to Grim Fandango. Uh, and he said, he's talked about it. They've had a lot of internal discussions at a double fine to kind of maybe come up with a plan and approach Disney with that. Uh, but the, the kind of idea that it is now in its current state is that if they were ever to do it, it would have to be a point and click adventure game mixed with an open world type GTA game in the world of Grim Fandango though, which sounds like the coolest game ever to me. <laughs> It it sounds like uh, Zelda Breath of the Wind, Breath of the Wild, uh, Breath of the Wild. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, it's your game, man. But but with a much more engaging story, and I want to play that, and I want them to make it for Switch. I almost just want to see it exist as a reskinning of L.A. Noir. Oh, yes. wow. just, just reskin the characters. I yeah. mean, wow. you, then you get you get this crime solving, foot foot chasing. Yeah, and literally don't there. change the story or the the voices no. at all. Eh. Why not, you know, I'm so that, you know. Oh my gosh, that'd be amazing. So yeah, I get to work on that. You're the game designer. Oh, so. sure. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Download Unity. Uh, I already have it downloaded, so I can help you out. Great. I don't know how to use it yet, but I'm, the, I'm sure you know, I can help funny, you out. The funny thing is if you've downloaded Unity recently, there's probably already an update. And then you Perfect. just have to download it all over again because there's no built-in updater. It's crazy. Awesome. Anyway. Smart. Well, cool. Smart. Yay.
my first note that I took in the gameplay was this is a masterclass of kind of balancing two things of being challenging, but also not being able to die. Like, I feel like whenever I think of the idea, whenever I tell someone, I'm like, oh yeah, LucasArts games, those point and click games in the 90s, like they, they did a great job. A lot of them, you couldn't even die and you couldn't get stuck. And when I say that, I always explain it in a way where I feel like I'm like, this is a game for four-year-olds. This is a game that's super easy. That's what it sounds like. That's what I feel like people are hearing when I say that. But this was still one of the hardest adventure games I've ever played. What made it so difficult for you? I think it's that we've talked about Tim Schafer before and his invention of puzzles and the way he thinks. And it, it, the puzzles are logical in a way that I can only see them in hindsight. Yeah. And so either it's Jason and I going to each other for hints or going to UHS and, and the universal hint system. And, and I love the way that they do. They don't just give you the answer, but they give you like one through 19 and you can like slowly click and it'll be like, how would you get a pantry door closed? Sure. Would, does Manny have anything in his pocket that might be able to keep it closed? You know, like slowly hints. I'm like, oh, now I feel oh, good great. if I figure it out before I get to the 19th one. And it's like, just take your scythe and do it. Uh, but yeah, it just seems like they're not intuitive for me personally. But at the end, I'm like, oh, I could see how Tim would just be like, oh, yeah, it's this and this and this. Obviously, you would use this to get this done kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I, I found know. the puzzles to be either yeah. um, totally obvious. Like for me, the, uh, the coffee mug. Uh, using the coffee mug. With the packing supplies and the yes. toaster and the rags and the oil. Fire extinguisher. All of that, yeah. as soon as I found each of those elements, it glued together and I was like, oh, I know exactly what to do. Yeah. In a way that it never even quite felt like a puzzle. Like, that was fine and I felt accomplished, but it wasn't, you know, a just great puzzle design. Or I found them to be completely impossible, which was the majority of the puzzles. And I think one of the reasons for that was there were so many elements, uh, and especially in uh, Rubicava, there were so many different things you could play with. Your inventory got so yeah. large. Yeah, uh, not just the inventory. Kind so of many scenes holding, and locations, all the different objects you could interact with. Yeah. yeah, so many different locations that just keeping track of everything in your mind without uh, usually there will be a clue in um, a LucasArts game where that when you look at an object, they'll give you a clue. There'll be a, a kind of vague clue there that'll kind of get you going. And then the the third thing that kept me from a lot of puzzles when I was I would know what to do. I just didn't know how to do it. Yes. Uh, so yeah, the example yeah. there would be uh, the cigarette case using the cigarette case in the bomb disposal thing to crack it open. I tried that like two dozen times before I looked up a hint and finally realized <laughs> I just need to hand it to her and have right. to do it. Yeah, that, that happened to me a couple times for sure. But his response was something like, I can't do that. Whereas if it had been her saying, listen, I'm the only one who's allowed to touch that, then all of a sudden instantly it would have clicked for me. Right. There's a lot of instances too where you get the... The, the 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 video clue like when you've solved a puzzle and it goes to a cutscene mm-hmm. that don't even relate or solve a puzzle i think the first instance of that is when you can put and i don't know if either of you did this but i put several loaves of bread in the pneumatic tube yes, yes oh, yeah. definitely and, <laughs> and you get this video where it chops up the bread and shoots breadcrumbs everywhere for no reason which leads you to believe <laughs> that that's important yes, maybe yes. or that you know, that's a way to solve the puzzle. So you're constantly right. saying, okay, well, clearly bread is one of the the elements here. Right. I have to keep going all the way down to the street, getting loaves of bread, <laughs> trying it out again. And I think those kind of red herrings that, that are peppered in there, either on purpose or not, are what makes some of those puzzles so challenging and yeah. near impossible. Yeah, for me, it was the um, in, in the same sequence uh, next to the, the parade, the, the objects there. 
that you couldn't get to the parade because there was some kind of barricade. Yeah, you're so convinced I have to get to the parade for some reason. I've not been told that I need to, but that's clearly the challenge. There's some objects that are in my way. Oh, and Manny said they're a fire hazard. I'm going to spend the next two hours trying to set them on fire. (laughs) And there's so many ways that you could do that. And so many things you've been told cause fire. You're also, you're also told that Domino is terrified of birds and that never, and that never really seems to matter. I kept thinking, great. uh, I'm going to chop this bread into crumbs. Then I'm going to go downstairs and get it. And then I'm going to use those crumbs outside his window to get birds to appear, to scare him out of his office. And none of that ever mattered. And it, and it, you know, it was, it was great because you kept just running through these scenarios. But then, of course, Manny would say, I don't think I want to do that or yeah, whatever yeah. he says over yeah, and over. Yeah. Yeah, I think the big one for me towards the beginning was the the tree pump at the end of year one. Oh. You're at the edge of the forest. Oh. Yeah. We have the wheelbarrow. And that got to the point when I was I knew I needed to move the wheelbarrow because there wasn't a lot of stuff. There wasn't much other to do. And there was the four pumps in the tree thing and Gladys is swinging around it. And even when I looked up the hints and the finally like went to the bottom one of that universal hint system, it was like, this is what you need to do. It still <laughs> took me a while to figure out like, what, am, what is it trying to explain to me that I'm not understanding the timing of what, like getting them to like go at the same time. That was a rough one for me where it wasn't exactly the most rational or like kind of logical solution to a puzzle. Uh, but that was one of the few places where I played it on windows and that was one of the few places where the game would glitch out for me. So when I got to that puzzle, I had played it before and I knew it was going to be a real pain for timing, but that was when all my textures and Manny completely disappeared. Mm. And so I had to just play with a wheelbarrow, pushing a wheelbarrow back and forth and Gladys wasn't there. And so it's just this spinning thing. You can hear everything, but it kept going oh in and gosh. out in black. Oh my god! And I was in. That's why deep. you want to play as the sound guy. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh! Was that on the remaster? Or that was back in the day. Did that? that was on the remaster. Back oh, in the day, geez. it was flawless. I mean, it glitched oh, out wow. several times in the remaster where uh, the, the the walk or the run yep. animation yep. would freeze, and you'd yep. just be hovering. Same. Yep. Uh, I know one puzzle that took me so long, and I knew again. It's one of those things where I knew what to do. Like I figured it out. I was on the forklift in the elevator. And I kept seeing that hole in the wall appear. I was like, oh, I need to put these forks in there. And I kept missing it, kept missing it. Finally, I got it in there. Didn't know what to do. I didn't realize that you had to like get out of the forklift to hit the button to yep. raise the, the forks. That one took me probably 45 minutes. And somewhere in there, I looked up the cheats. And even then, even looking at the cheats, I could not figure out what to do. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there was a few puzzles like that. It's great when the cheats tell you, do the thing that you're already trying to do. Yes, exactly. It makes me feel better. But also, I'm I, I, there was... A, two times in this game and that was one of them where i'm like this game it, there's a glitch it's obviously a glitch and that's <laughs> the game is broken it's not me and it's never been a glitch at least to the extent that the puzzle is broken so when i played it originally i know i didn't have access to anything like that so it took me a, over a year to I beat bet. this game I bet. and you know trial and error you you get frustrated you come back the next month or whatever but i would yep. i it really must have hammered those ideas home because when I played the remastered version, I didn't have to do any. Nice. I didn't have to look anything up. I just, I would remember, Oh, I remember there being something I need from the kitchen or Mm -hmm. I remember there being a, a a weird, you know, order of doing these things, but it hurt me too, because I would remember things out of order. And so I would, I found myself, you know, stuck with things in my inventory that, 
I didn't need until the end of that year. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I, because I remember the dialogue choices or the scenarios to, to get like, you know, the, whatever the ticket from the racetrack, but then it didn't, it wasn't any use to me because you, you weren't even at that part of the story. Yeah. 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 I imagine that might be the hardest part of making these puzzle led games is giving enough red herrings that it's not obvious. Like you want to have every room and every scene and every character have something to do with the plot. Cause that's just good writing, but you don't want it to be so obvious that like, Oh, you just have to walk around and talk to everyone. And then you know how to solve everything. Like it's, you still have to use your brain and be creative along the way to solve the puzzle. That's gotta be, but still have some things that are red herrings that kind of throw you off the trail a little bit, but not so much that you're frustrated and walk away from the game. Sure. I, Puzzle dependency chart, the core of any good adventure game. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, we played a lot of games on so far in Mendham Flow Moral Fiber as a podcast that we started as kids and gave up somehow. It was either pre-internet or we went away to school or we didn't have any of the friends playing it. Whatever it was, we stopped halfway because we got so frustrated and we didn't finish until our 30s. Yeah. But yeah, it's nice um, having the internet now. This, some, There's something to be said for this game that I'm just going to go go ahead and say it is almost unplayable because of the difficulty of some of these puzzles. Okay. And yet, I really understand why this is some people's favorite game of all time. Yeah. And not necessarily because they solved all the puzzles. Um, you know, the first try didn't need hence. You know, there's some people, I, I assume if you solved all the puzzles, you know, by working through it, you would just be incredibly proud of yourself. And that's why you would love the game. Um, yeah. But the story, uh, the graphics, the world that it creates is so beautiful and unique mm-hmm. and amazing that it, it makes sense why people love this game so much. Well, I remember there being a glitch in the in the alley when the game came out where you couldn't climb the rope. And there was a I don't remember if it was it was it was like you, it was the first time I think I had to patch a game. I didn't even know what a patch wow. was at that point. But it was I spent a month trying to climb this rope because I was certain I had to get to right. the roof and you couldn't, it was just, it was a, it was a bug in the game, but yeah, it was pre internet. You, you, I had to think go to the library to get the patch or yes. something. Yep. And I didn't even know. Cause who do you even ask? Like, Oh, did you have this problem or there's nothing to check. So that was the, you know, just at the library finding the LucasArts page where, you know, you're trying to find like a cool desktop for your computer uh, on their official site, and then you see, oh, here's this patch that fixes the alley problem. What? Wow. Um, the the patch I, I looked it up. It was released shortly after uh, the game came came out. Can't find any initial responses to it, but yeah, it the way it's described, it seems like eh, it fixes a, a few little uh, errors, uh, <laughs> you know, here and there, and then it lists, you know, this is the same thing that happens with any patch or upgrade, right? Uh, they'll list twenty things that it changes. Uh, so you don't notice that number 17 is this thing does not work in its current state. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a shame that it got that far. And that, uh, I wonder how much that uh, hurt the sales early on. Yeah. Especially, yeah, that's so early in the game. It's one of the first things you can do. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love the, the sprouting device and how they introduce it. Yes. And I think in year two, uh, when Lola, I think is she dies in the lighthouse. That's exactly what I think that's the, yes. f- for one of the first times at least that they introduced the sprouting and that's just such a beautiful and also kind of graphic. If you think about what it's a metaphor for blood everywhere and guts and all that, I mean, it's just, it, but it's at the same time, kid friendly and poetic. And I mean, it's just so well done. And the way they bring it back in the end 
where his uh, from his heart it sprouts the one and he has to freeze it. I thought that was a really cool device that they used throughout. Again, just making this such a unique story. It's really nice, especially considering, you know, when you look at Day of the Dead and the history associated with, you know, that really kind of important part of Mexican culture. Yeah. And there is so much attention given to the specificity of flowers and arrangements and skulls. And so it was a really I think great solution to how that would be handled when you don't have blood, you don't have right. organs that can be damaged, but you get returned back to the earth and that's the worst way to go. Maybe. And at the end, the field of flowers surrounding Hector, Hector was the main guy, right? Oh, Hector. Yeah. 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 Was Hector. Okay. Yeah. Just the field of flowers. Again, it's just so uh, morbid at that point, which again, you're playing as a dead person. Still, it, things can still be morbid in that world. Uh, I love the double cross at the end. Again, just great original story. And even the things that they, they borrowed so many things to make this game just symbol wise and visually and everything is just very creative way to make an adventure game. Yeah. Any, any other kind of last words on um, gameplay overall? Well, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the references to film noir and, and yeah. some of the actions that you undertake. And there's certainly a lot of Casablanca involved with the way Manny's dressed in the places and, overlooking the you know the 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 vast desert or or whatever but maybe the one that is is something that immediately jumped out at me when i was playing it years ago and recently was when you are fighting domino on the sub on the on the sub and it you know it's very clear that the the coral grinders are about to get domino and then you see basically play out the exact scene from uh was it Last Crusade? Last Crusade, yeah. Where you know Indiana Jones kind of looks and then covers his face in preparation for the you know the blood spray or whatever. So well, that's that's I, the interesting. I, I really thing. love that. I think that that yeah. combined Last Crusade, which is the boat, with yeah um, Raiders. Uh, it would have been Raiders. Raiders. Yeah, yeah. So his reaction yeah. is Raiders, but the scene is Last Crusade. Yes, because wow. the because um, the the boat gets kind of chopped up. In right. Last yeah. Crusade. That's right. It's, so it's a palimpsest of Indiana Jones references. Um, which is the new title for uh, this podcast, Ben. So just <laughs> clock it right now. Palin says to references. Is there a Temple of Doom reference in there that we can at least get the, get the, let's, <laughs> the, let's, tuxedo, per, let's the pretend white it's a trilogy. Jacket. Let's pretend yeah. that there was not a fourth one. The yeah. heart. It's the, the white the end, maybe jacket. the heart being pulled out sure. of yes. his chest. There's Temple of Doom for you. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Oh the, yeah. Well, the heart is jacket. good. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of, well, I guess there's a couple hearts, but yeah, that works too. The heart literally being ripped from his chest. The Gladys. Yeah. Good call. That one. That's what I meant to say. Uh-huh. There we go. All right. Done. What's the beer? What's the song? This game's pretty fun. You with frustration. When I was all done, I just had to question. What's the beer? What's the song? I can't always tell. I just want to know. What game is Westy 12? So my beer, um, I was thinking about noir and uh, Mexican influences. My favorite noirs are all set in Southern California. I love some of those uh, old Chandler books. And uh, so I chose the brewery, Share This Mole. Oh, nice. Which I've never had, but looks amazing. I love mole stouts and mole porters. Uh, And this one in particular looks really tasty. Uh, but a good L.A. Mexican beer um, gets the the kind of uh, Chicano culture 
uh, that's such a big part of Southern California. Doesn't necessarily get the noir part, but for me, uh, LA is always noir. Nice. Nick, what about you? I chose a beer I had a couple of years ago that I don't think they make anymore, but it's from a brewery called Clown Shoes. And yes. they have incredible artwork. I've always often picked my beer by by what's on the bottle. As you should. But I remembered there being one that was specifically, you know, kind of Mexican themed or tequila themed. And so I, I looked it up and it was called the Tequila Barrel Sombrero. Ooh. And I'm gonna I'll just read the, the description of it here. It's uh it's a tequila barrel used for the fermentation and it's a oh, wow. vanilla cinnamon ancho chili and chocolate uh stout wow that is that is uh aged for 10 months in a tequila barrel yeah and it's very high abv as many of the the drinks in grim fandango so it felt really fitting nice yeah oh that sounds delicious man uh i went with uh, my i kind of created the I took some adjectives from the game to kind of get my beer and my song. So I went with dark, funny, smart, complex, and that got me to Worldwide Stout from Dogfish Head uh, over in Delaware. It's 18.5% or 18% uh, wow. alcohol stout, and it was one of the first stouts I'd ever tasted, so 10 years ago or so, and it just blew me away. Like, it was way too much for me to handle. Uh, it was bitter and sweet and complex, and there was, like, roasty, like, crazy flavors. I was going from, like, Hefeweizen and pale ale to this, and it was just way too much. But yeah, challenging as dark as night. Uh, but yeah, just a lot going on that I couldn't quite grasp, which is kind of how I felt for a lot of Grim Fandango. Uh, which at the same time, I started home brewing and started getting into microbrew culture and stuff after that. Just like Grim Fandango, I think is a great ambassador for for slow clickers, Jay. Uh, yes. and yeah, slow for clickers. smart games in general, games that are challenging. So that's a great transition, actually, into my song, if I can do it there. Yeah. Um, I chose um, Miles Davis, uh, Pharaoh's Dance, uh, the first track off of Bitches Brew. Um, wow. I could have chosen the entire nice. album, but um, I chose it because, similar to the reasons you chose your your beer, it's really complex. It's it's not accessible. You know, it's not an entry-level, like, oh, you like music? Here, yeah. check out Bitches Brew. Uh, I like how you're not doing it on this. because Sam Calagione of Dogfish Head. Yes, that's a better connection. <laughs> Made a beer based off of that album called Bitches Brew. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, and it's that's a, not the connection you were making, though. Okay, cool, cool. Nope, not the connection I was making. All right. Well, and then I, I could conceptually go with Pharaoh and the idea of death and pyramids and tombs and all that. But, sure. Uh, for me, it was just uh, that's music I've been listening to uh, recently, and I, I love it. It's beautiful but difficult, which for me matches Grim Fandango. I chose a New Order song, which seems out of place, but I chose uh, Elegia. Uh, specifically, the there's a 17-minute version that wow. was released uh, a few years ago, I think, or found, you know. Sure. But it's a song that I think the band had said was kind of written about, you know, the loss of Ian Curtis and, you know, of course, is basically a, an old style of writing that's about lament for the dead. And it's just, there's, I don't think there's any lyrics. I don't remember there being any lyrics, but it's uh, just this really long kind of droning and building song that felt like it, it would belong really well in that world, right on this long journey. And I think the, 
I, I thought about it specifically because a few years ago when another game, uh, Metal Gear Solid 5, came out, they released a trailer that used that that oh, nice. that song. And so you just see this kind of really long, tormented character dealing with a lot of issues of death. And it reminded me a lot of that. Uh, I went with a, a song by the band called I the Mighty is the name of the band and they're from the Bay Area a friend of mine uh, Jake Pritchard got me to them a couple years ago and he basically he said oh you like Thrice and Reliant K so like this metal band and this pop punky whatever Reliant K is band uh, here's a band that's basically them combined and it's called I the Mighty the song I chose is Lady of Death uh, and I don't know what the actual song is about but I read through the lyrics and they line up perfectly with Manny's feelings towards Meche uh, I'll read the, the first couple of verses or the first verse is she was screaming at the sky with her arms outstretched, head high, no fear of God in her eyes. I couldn't help but stare. She was so goddamn beautiful and so self-aware. Uh, and it kind of tells of Meche's confidence and self-awareness and how how she lived and died and how she's anything but a damsel in distress. And then it ends with, like, the, most of the song is about him and his um, kind of adoration of her in the song. And it kind of ends with the line, then it, then it all went dark till I awoke in a room of white, the sound of my heart beating out of my chest and the glare of floodlights which to me is the imagery of Manny's chest sprouting and the flower coming out of his heart at night right in front of the car's headlights. Uh, so it doesn't follow the game's plot exactly, but the same emotions I feel when I hear that song are the same, similar to the when I was playing Grim Fandango. Uh, and it mirrors a lot of the same imagery from the game throughout. So I thought that was kind of a cool cool song that I'll throw up right now. The sound of my heart beating out of my chest and the glare of So as soon as the LucasArts logo comes up, is that when I press play? Yeah, it seems like it, right? No, I, <laughs> and it's not like I was listening to this album while I was playing it, but I, I listened to this when I was just looking for music. And I was like, oh, yeah, this feels like the That's game awesome. did. Yeah, and the lyrics lined up pretty well. So I want to jump in there real quick because I kind of uh, was biting my tongue earlier to talk about uh, the damsel in distress trope in terms of this game. Yeah. Uh, and then you brought it up. Uh, explicitly with that song. There you go. Uh, I'm teaching a class right now on gender and sexuality in video games. One of the first things we talk about is the damsel in distress trope. And this game, I wanted so badly for it not to fall into that. And I kept trying to find excuses why it doesn't and why Meche actually is a much more interesting character. Uh, she is more fully fleshed out, uh, no pun intended. And, you know, that's true. And yet, how does she act in the game? But just as an object, uh, mm. not necessarily to be held, but an object to be attained, right? The goal of the game is to get Meche. That's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself, but when it feels like 90% of video game plots are go save this woman, right. that's when it starts to become problematic. And I don't really see this game doing a whole lot to push back against that that's other true. than making Meche a, a fairly interesting character with some agency of her own. But it, but it can't compare to um, you know some of the other games we played like Gone Home, uh, which you know really subverts the yeah, damsel yeah, yeah. distress trope in interesting ways. And I think just to, I, I said she's anything but a damsel in distress. And I, I meant that more towards her as a person and not the way the main character right. sees her and the way that she's right. used in the plot, which is very much like a damsel. Uh, but I think just she doesn't act that way. Right. And I think the game from her perspective is not, I, I need someone to come save me. It's I'm doing my own thing. I'm in power. I, I have uh, agency all my own. I have the power. 
when I think of Manny's feelings towards Meche, it's almost like she's a vice, like she's a temptation for him to make her that damsel in distress. But it's just more than that. It is that thing because that is the driving force that moves him from world to world from throughout this. So it's, I guess, yeah, it's it's not very subversive, like you said. You even almost get the your princess is in another castle at the end of each yes. level. Yeah, that's a good, right? good call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she, one of the things we didn't talk about is at the end of what year two when she throws a champagne bottle at you to yes. keep yeah. you from getting right. to her. Yeah, and to save you. Him. Find out later why. Yeah, you find out later yeah. why. But it, it shows her as kind of escaping with Domino, and you're really confused. But I, I guess maybe your your biggest insight into her or the only character development you get without Manny present is when you talk to the Angelitos uh, making light bulbs and they talk about her. And they talk about how she cries or how, she, yes. how she's upset. And that's really the only time you learn about her when you're not directly interacting with her. I, I wanted them to come. I guess they did come back at the end. They save your life. Never mind. <laughs> I was going to say yeah. I wanted them to come back. They do, but you don't, there's no more dialogue, I guess, with them because they were – Two very interesting characters. Uh, something really interesting with this, uh, and I'm referencing Anita Sarkeesian's videos uh, on the damsel in distress trope. Uh, okay. She then breaks it down into the various ways that this trope gets changed. So you've got the uh, woman in the refrigerator, which is also, you know, there has been a uh, – your wife has been murdered and you have to avenge her, which then gets combined in some games into the damsel in the refrigerator where your, your wife has been murdered but your daughter has been kidnapped. Yes. And then there's the euthanized damsel. Uh, you got to get to the end of the game and you've got to actually kill the woman that you were seeking after because she's been corrupted in some way. And the weird thing about this is for each of the tropes, she gives like two dozen examples and just starts naming them off. You're like, how is this? How is this a thing that happens this often? Right. This is um, a trope. Yeah. And so the, one of the interesting things, the, the reason I bring it up in terms of Grim Fandango is this actually is in a slightly subversive way, uh, the damsel in the refrigerator in that she is dead. You start with her <laughs> yeah. dead. Good call. Uh, it doesn't quite work in the same way that it typically does with that you're not avenging her death uh but the entire game is about the journey of death so is that the sequel and i was thinking about sequels and the quote from tim he's like well we have to either like take manny back we have to take his reward away from playing grim right, right and bring him back into this world which is it seems weird or create a new world or get new characters yeah i'm like what if you take the person who saw meche as the damsel in real life and he just died or she just died mm. And they're going back into that travel agency in the new type of whatever changes Manny and Meche and all of them made to that world. I don't know. Yeah. Just thinking ideas, Tim. Okay, Tim, are you listening? <laughs> I, don't know. I, I have a real quick question regarding Glottis. Glottis is often. We didn't you know, talk enough he's about a, him. He's a very beloved character. We didn't talk about him a lot. Man. But at the end, when he's dying and these tiny goblins yeah. ask you how long has it been since this demon is driven you know how long is <laughs> you know that's that's their assessment of his health and it's your first encounter with claudus is when he's uh, a mechanic right for the the department of the dead but he doesn't get to drive because he doesn't fit in the cars so my question is how does he sustain himself without driving or is that just uh, something we never know about this character? Is, is, does he have a secret, you know, go-kart that he, that he rides around to stay alive? Speed is the food of the great Gladys. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Oh, he's so good. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he has the, uh, the tram, right? Yeah. But, well, I mean, but in, in the Department of the Dead, you, you meet oh, him. Oh, before. He, Sorry. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, because he says, like, I don't get to drive because I don't fit in the cars. Yeah, I wonder if working on cars is just enough to subsist Mm. on. Well, that's Uh, a good idea. And so he is in this kind of uh, emaciated state 
Um, yeah. I mean, clearly he doesn't necessarily look that emaciated, but uh, he's just barely getting by. But we're that close. Well, to okay. New theory. If speed is the food of the great Gladys and he's, you find him in the bathroom. Mm. He's just doing, <laughs> he's just doing amphetamines <laughs> in the bathroom. Oh, I, I was going to say he, he's bulimic. Oh, okay. well, we know. Wow. Well, we know all that's that in his office works. is Bondo, right? Like it's <laughs> body filler and yeah. Yeah. in a dispenser. That's all that's yeah. in his yeah. office, basically. Yeah. I'm sure you could huff that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Gladys. Which reminds me of our other podcast, Can You Huff It? So let's plug that real quick. <laughs> Check that out on <laughs> overthinkpod.com. Anyway, uh, so now we have to pick next month's game. And it's a special time because now we don't, we haven't even talked about it. Nick, do you want to help us pick next month's game? Sure. I would. Are you doing all the LucasArts catalog? Are you done with LucasArts catalog? Oh, man, we can we can do whatever we want. We've done 23 of them and wow. probably five of them have been games that have sprouted off. So either Telltale games, Double Fine games or like Thimbleweed Park, things like that. People that, you know, started in LucasArts or sure. related to LucasArts in some way. But yeah, I say name a game you want us to play and we'll either tell you that we played it or we'll play it. OK, so often I think. Uh, there's two games that I think of as really important to the Star Wars universe that I played. And one is Knights of the Old Republic, which go. is often like one of the, you know, some people say it's like the best Star Wars game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Knights of the Old Republic kind of early RPG kind of things. And then uh, one called Shadows of the Empire. Yeah. An old uh, console love, game. Love. Where you play Dash Rendar. Is that right? Is that the right character? So, uh, yeah. 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 So uh, I remember playing that and falling in love with that story and that character only to be struck down by LucasArts, Disney, Lucasfilm when they said it wasn't canon anymore. Yeah. Right? It's canon in our hearts. It is. Dash Rendar. But yeah, those are two games I, I would throw out. Those, those are great. Oh, man. I love I got an N64 last year just to play Shadows of the Empire. Oof. Yeah. That is one of my all time favorite games, period. Yeah. Uh, Jason, would you want to buy an N64 and play Shadows of the Empire? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Are you just saying that because we have a guest and as soon as he hangs up, we're going to change the game? No, I'm, I'm in. Uh, I, want to, I want to propose some other games as well, but not for next month. It's Shadows of the Empire. Uh, that's, okay. That's what we're doing next oh, month. I'm, I'm so in. stoked, man. But, okay, but cool. here's, let, let me tell you something else I did. I uh, was on the PlayStation Network last night. I was looking for, for new games. And on the front page, it said, uh, play, play your favorite designer's favorite games. Okay. And, it, and there's a big picture of Tim Schafer. I went, what? what now? And I clicked on it. And it says from the from the man who brought you full throttle, and it's just a list of his ten favorite games. And there's a brand new one. One of them is uh, Bound, which uh, I showed Nick last night. Yeah. Um, and it's got a a VR mode, and it's got a regular mode. So it's it's a really interesting VR game as well to talk about. Uh, but I'd like to play that. But that can be in a couple months uh, or something like that. It's it's a unique game. Nice. I had a couple games to our. We have a full list of games. It's like games we'll get to someday. There's a couple of games coming out this year that we want to play. Kona is a game. That we, that we need oh, to play this year. I like that. I, I did play that one. You did play that. Okay, sweet. All right. Yeah. We'll definitely, yeah, we have a full list of games. It's, it's coming up fast. But yeah, so we'll do Shadows of the Empire coming out first Friday in March this year. And we'll get to Battlefront at some point this year. I still haven't played it yet. Uh, and we know that yeah. you want Knights of the Old Republic. We have, we have heard you online asking about it. So don't worry. We, we will get to Knights of the Old Republic as well. Oh, so great. The only problem with that is that it's such an involved game. We might have to be like, hey, from April to July, be playing yeah. this while you're playing other games. Yeah. <laughs> and like spend a couple, well, like an hour a week playing story this story. If, if you're able to, to start playing it and then just revisit it in a year. Yeah. Or mm. something. Cause it, cause it, there's such a, without giving anything away, there's some huge twists in there that really exactly. shed a lot of light on the, 
Star Wars excited. universe. That, that'd be a fun way to do it, to just revisit it instead of doing an episode on it. Uh, let's do our Knights of the Old Republic check-in. Uh, yeah. Do that over a, the span of four or five episodes and then finally, finally do an episode on it. Oh, let's do that. I like that. All right, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for playing Grim Fandango 20 years ago and playing it dozens of times. Oh, I'm so excited. This is the first time I've been able to talk about it at length with people it. who can share in the love for such a great game. Definitely. Yeah. And thank you, Jason, again, for joining me as always. Happy to. Uh, and you can, if you have any questions, comments, concerns of how we're handling uh, Gladys and how much we didn't talk about him, we should have talked about him even more because there's so many good one-liners from Gladys. Uh, you can check out our website at menoflowmoralfiber.com. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, just search Men of Low Moral Fiber, any of those places. Or you can email us directly at momfpod at gmail.com, M-O-L-M-F-P-O-D at gmail.com. Uh, and check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash M-O-L-M-F. Thank you again uh, to Nick Gates also for setting up fomf.com, friends of low moral fiber check that out uh and i think that's all we have for today i don't know how we're gonna do this but as always i have been ben i am nick i will be jason and i am a mighty pirate and i am a sleepy tattoo artist and we shoot you now like an arrow into the wind may you pierce the heart of the wind itself and drink the blood of flight (laughs) love it see you guys next month